This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with our co-founder Suzanne Kreider. It's likely that you've heard the term pacifism and have some idea of what that means. Same for the word anarchy. You probably have a thought or two about what that means to you as well. But have you ever heard them used together to describe what's known by some as anarcho-pacifism? What's the difference between anarcho-pacifism and just plain pacifism? Today, conversations with two scholars who know the history of the term and that anarchy and pacifism sort of merged in the 20th century as a result of many factors, including religious anarchism, two world wars, and the atomic bombings on Japan, we'll learn that anarcho-pacifists hold that anarchism is a philosophy of nonviolence because it opposes all domination and power, whether it comes from individuals, armies, governments, or other institutions that either create or ignore suffering. This includes the strongest form of domination, violence upon another person. Anarcho-pacifists support peaceful, nonviolent resistance for social change. Many would say this nonviolent revolution approach is used in movements such as for civil rights, LGBTQIA+, the environment, and others. Philosophers and activists down through history who are mentioned as advocating early for principles of anarcho-pacifism are Thoreau, Tolstoy, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King Jr. Now this program doesn't attempt to address the multitude of related movements, but only to take an initial view of this idea of the combination of anarchy and pacifism. Suzanne Kreider talks later with Dr. Nehal A. Patel, a lawyer and associate professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. And first, with anarcho-pacifism activist scholar Dr. Joseph Llewellyn, who completed his Ph.D. at the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Otago in New Zealand in 2018. Previously, he completed an M.A. and a postgraduate diploma in the same department at the school. His research interests include anarchism, pacifism, nonviolent resistance, Gandhi, Buddhist perspectives on nonviolence, military abolition, and decolonization. Suzanne Kreider talks with Dr. Joseph Llewellyn on a Zoom line from New Zealand. Dr. Llewellyn, you know, some people know what the word pacifism means, but they've never heard the word anarcho-pacifism. So how are those terms pacifism and anarcho-pacifism similar and different? Maybe it helps to define the two briefly first. So I suppose like as, as many people know, pacifists reject war as they view it as inherently wrong. So it's a pacifism is a rejection of mostly physical violence to achieve political goals and aims. Anarchism, on the other hand, is defined more by its position against domination and exploitation. So it focuses more on the rejection of structural and cultural violence, which includes the violence of the state and the violence of capitalism. Anarcho-pacifists would normally argue that if you followed each of those to their full conclusion, they, they kind of meet at the middle. So if anarchists reject domination, they should really reject physical violence because violence inherently dominates other people. And if pacifists reject violence, there shouldn't just be violence in war or physical violence, but all forms of violence that can have damaging effects on people's lives. So I'd, I'd say it's a, anarcho-pacifism is a, the political theory that comprehensively rejects violence. And on the, on the other side, um, the positive side, it also puts an emphasis on people's ability to live and thrive and make change without violence. It seems really rare in the Western world to find 
a true, pure anarcho-pacifist. You know, I have friends who say, well, I hate capitalism. I hate the government. I hate corporations because they're all domination. And they call themselves pacifists. But then, you know, it seems like if you own a car and you live in a house and you buy groceries, you're supporting a corporation. The question is, is there really a true, pure anarcho-pacifist? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think it, it's very hard to live purely by those ideals. I think, as, as you're saying, in a world that is dominated by capitalism and governments and the state. So I think anarcho-pacifists put an emphasis on two types of action, I think. And one side of that is nonviolent resistance, which um, we've seen a lot of around the world and increasing over the last few decades. And another side, I think, which is key is an experimentation in new ways of being. So we might not, especially in like Western capitalist states, it might be difficult to find space um, to truly live by those ideals and outside of the state. But anarcho-pacifists are trying to find ways to do things differently that allow us to operate more non-violently as, as communities. So I think in terms of, can we find a pure anarcho-pacifist? Being an anarcho-pacifist is about, it's, it's about the process of doing that more than it is about the endpoint of fully being able to live totally non-violently. Tell us more about the Gandhian movement. Like what about it was anarcho-pacifist? Yeah, well, I think in, in my research, I, I focused a lot on Gandhi and especially the Gandhian movement after Gandhi died. A lot of research and focus on Gandhi is about Gandhi's nonviolent resistance to the British, which of course is a really, a really important part of what Gandhi did and Gandhi's nonviolent theory. The other side of Gandhi is about trying to create the nonviolent society that was non-hierarchical and local and gave as much power to communities and individuals as, as, as possible. We could frame Gandhi as, as a kind of anarchist, even though he doesn't draw on kind of European anarchist traditions. He described the state as a, as a soulless machine that can't be weaned from violence that's inherently violent and described his non-violent society as like the purest kind of anarchy. And a lot of his effort went into coming up with an idea of village structures that would work non-hierarchically and interconnectedly. And the people within those villages would engage in lots of different types of experimentation about ways of living um, as part of his collective program. So was, he envisages a society where people acted non-violently across the board and as locally as possible. But if something is non-hierarchical, doesn't that mean there's like no boss, there's no top person to decide what we're going to do next? I think from the anarcho-pacifist point of view, and I think from Gandhi as well, any kind of state structure as we currently see that is violent. So we have at the moment all states in the world, they're really they're defined by their monopoly on violence and their ability to use that violence against people and their authority over people in the territory. And I think Gandhi and other, and other anarchists want to break that down. So if we, we think about like not having a leader who makes decisions. I don't think it's about not having leadership, but Gandhi was clearly a leader. But have, not having leaders or positions of authority that permanently privilege people or are unchangeable. So leaders might rise up in certain situations and then become part of the collective again. But it's not the same, I don't think, as having you know, one, one rigid ruler or one particular group who rule 
or who rule for a certain amount of time on question. There's a, I guess there's a lot more fluidity in it. Joe, other than Gandhi, give us an example of some group or country that's really tried to use anarcho-pacifism. I suppose it depends on how we look at it. So there are groups that call themselves anarcho-pacifists. We can see that within Christian anarchist movements. So the Tolstoy and Commune movement, I suppose, would be, you could say, was anarcho-pacifist. You could say a lot of people in the operating within some of Catholic worker groups and plowshares movement, for example, often describe themselves as anarcho-pacifists. I suppose beyond that, we see that see it in lots of communities that have, and then we become, we're stretching broader into anarchism more broadly now as groups that just try and operate in a way that is, is non-hierarchical and non, non-violent and experiment in doing that. So we can see that in a lot of indigenous communities around the world. We can see that with more recently in um, groups like the Zapatistas in Mexico, there's that inspir- experimentation going on. And then on top of that, I think if you if you look at the work of people like David Graeber, there's a lot of examples going back through history where the state wasn't always so dominant in our societies and people found ways without that kind of authority above them to, to organise, um, I suppose, on the, on the same level as each other and for the common need rather than so just one group to get more out of resources and organisation than another. I, th- I think we've got an important job to do, and especially in, stepping back more into my sort of academic role now, it's important to highlight the places where people do operate differently, where we do look after each other, where we operate in ways that are, are non- non-hierarchical and supportive and embrace each other and embrace diversity. I think a lot of our media and the way our government works is really focused on a particular way that we operate um, and puts a lot of emphasis on fear and violence, which, and violence obviously does exist and is out there, but we really need to, I think as an anarcho-pacifist or as peace activists or whoever it is, we need to be bringing out those stories about how people do things differently and how we do that differently on, an in, on a level that people can, can connect to. Huh. I don't know that much about history. So there was a time for centuries where people just kind of got along and knew, yeah, we all have to get this done. So let's do it together. I don't know. I don't know about there's a time where um, people always get along. I think there's always conflict. <laughs> um, but I think we can definitely find spaces in history where states and governments weren't as dominating and we can find communities or village structures where we didn't have so much hierarchy and some people who were privileged over others and certainly not a world system where some states hold more power over others and exploit others. So I think anarchists and pacifists have a positive view of humanity. I think there's this, this idea that when you remove top-down authority and power over that people have the ability to cooperate with each other. And I think we see that in a few places. I think here, at least where I am, there was an earthquake in New Zealand a few years ago. And when all the chaos after the earthquake, we might have seen one or two people that shoplifted or used that to their own advantage. But the vast majority of stories coming out in the news were of people who just helped each other and organised things for each other and make sure people had food and make sure people were safe. And they do that People do that naturally without the need for a central authority to, to tell them to do it. And I guess anarcho-pacifists are trying to create a society that leans more on that type of organisation rather than appealing to a central authority. 
And so the Gandhians, I think, are especially interesting in that regard because they don't, there's no appealing to, appealing to the state. It's about, or demanding things from the state, really. It's more about how can we organise to get the things that we need to get done done in a way that benefits everybody. It's really true. We see that too in the US with natural disasters where people are really kind. It's like their heart's really open and that's so interesting to me that it seems like it takes something bad to happen before people can be nice to each other. Yeah, sometimes I suppose. We definitely see it when people are put under, put under pressure, which is really positive, right? That people tend to, and we, I think we've seen that with the coronavirus as well in various communities, that people tend to have each other's backs more than they exploit each other or be violent naturally, which is interesting because it really goes against a lot of, a few hundred years of Western political theory, which is really based on the idea that everyone's out to get each other. Because of that, we need to give our power to a central authority to maintain control, otherwise it will be chaos. So I think anarcho-pacifist thinking or Gandhian thinking really flips that, that idea on its head and goes, hang on, actually, we do look at each other after each other. We can look at after each other. And communities tend to know what they need within that community more than someone, say, far away in a parliament building might. Joe, it seems like a possible solution to nonviolence is called transarmament. Explain transarmament and if it's ever been used successfully. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of really good arguments for transforming and removing the military, um, which is one of the other things that I, I research and look at in the New Zealand context. I think around the world, I can speak I can better speak about New Zealand. A lot of the justification of military and the funding of the military is that it's about our security, that we need these, this force to secure people. It doesn't take too much to flip that on its head and think about a military force is mostly about training people to kill and to harm other people. And it's about buying and using technology. It's about harming and killing people. And I think we could definitely, if we use that money to train doctors and nurses, rather than putting it into equipment for guns and fighter planes, we put it into equipment for being able to pull people out of out of rubble after an earthquake or something like that, that we would go a, lot, a much longer way to actually creating human security. Or even just using that funding and pumping it into, like here we're talking about the, the military creating security, but we've got a lot of people living with insecurity just in society because of inequality and bad housing and the cost of living, that if that money was used for that, we would go a lot, a lot further to creating a more secure society for people. Dr. Llewellyn, let's try a hypothetical. Let's say someone says, oh, those anarcho-pacifists are so out of touch. They think that you should just turn the other cheek. And that's a crazy idea because you'll just get killed. What would a narco-pacifist say in terms of self-defense? Yeah, I think that's quite, that's, that's quite a common, common argument that's used against um, probably both anarchism and pacifism separately and together. And people often conflate, I think, the ideas of force and coercion and violence as if they're all one thing. And I think we've really, I mean, started by people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King as famous examples, but more and more over the over the decades since then, we've seen lots of people be able to exert force, but non-violently. 
So looking at ways of defending themselves or removing authoritarian regimes. So exerting force through a whole list of nonviolent actions, but without actually having to physically harm other people or harm bodies or cause pain or destroy infrastructure. Um, so I often point, I think that people criticize, you know, that, that, that idea I point to the work of Gene Sharp quite a lot and his 180 methods of nonviolent resistance. That actually we have, you know, there's a lot of history of people doing those things. And generally, I think, you know, it's a bit like talking about natural disasters, but generally, a lot of people accept the idea of war and violence when governments go overseas. But internally, in a lot of countries, we wouldn't accept that as a type of, as an acceptable form of politics. We, we think people resolve things without violence. And, and I'd, I'd say that's generally the way that people tend to operate. Well, I heard this monk tell a story when he was on this walking tour of India, when he was attacked by robbers, he just put his head down. <laughs> These people had axes. There was a guy in front of him with an axe. He put his head down and he pointed to the top of his head, like, go ahead and slip my head open. And the guy with the axe ran away. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely lots of examples, aren't there? Of, I think... When you destabilize people and act in a way that's different to what they're expecting, it makes it quite difficult for them. And I think this is one of Gandhi's, and I think it's very hard for people to do, but very admirable. One of Gandhi's things about nonviolence was that you just present yourself as that. Um, and they would walk up to people with weapons. And it, the idea being partly that it creates a kind of like a moral jujitsu, it puts someone in, it's, it's a lot easier for someone to hit someone who's violent or a threat, but someone who's unarmed or unthreatening, it, it causes a moral problem within people that makes it much difficult, much more difficult for them to attack people. And I'm not saying that happens all the time, but I think it's, there's definitely cases, lots of cases of that. We'll hear more from Dr. Joseph Llewellyn later in our program. And we'll meet another guest who can speak to the Mohandas Gandhi connection to anarcho-pacifism right after this short break. I'm Paul Ingalls, and we're getting a primer on the idea of anarcho-pacifism today on Peace Talks Radio. Next up, Suzanne Kreider visits with Dr. Nehal A. Patel, a lawyer and associate professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. Dr. Patel has initiated the Mindful Law Project with the intent to develop social and legal thought through the teachings of Mohandas Gandhi and the insights of meditative and contemplative traditions, including applying Gandhi's thoughts on movements for environmental justice and LGBTQ civil rights. 
Gandhi is often cited as a principal purveyor of anarcho-pacifist activism. Here again with Dr. Nahal Patel is our Suzanne Kreider. Okay, Dr. Patel, while I'm not saying that you are an anarcho-pacifist, you write about some of those similar qualities like um, nonviolence, corporate impact, and power imbalances. So you're trained as a lawyer. You also have a PhD. What is the role of the law in bringing solutions to violence or corporate corruption? Well, as a representative of the public and the only institution in society which um, claims this formal power to represent the public, law bodies have the potential to represent the public's interest in wanting to create a nonviolent uh, society free from corruption. To what extent they do or do not uh, fulfill this uh, responsibility will depend in part on the extent to which wealthy, privileged uh, parties and special interests control the implementation, interpretation, and enforcement of laws. Um, and at this point, I think law needs a new architecture to more adequately promote nonviolence. A uh, new architecture. What are like three basic pieces of that architecture? In my work, I talk about a, a few major principles. Probably the most important is uh, what uh, Gandhi and others in um, Dharmic traditions call ahimsa, which is often translated as nonviolence, non-harm, or non-injury. When this doctrine is a central guiding principle in a line of reasoning, uh, including in legal reasoning, then we put the concern of people suffering at the forefront of our considerations that becomes a priority in the way that we think. And so uh, ahimsa is certainly one important concept. A, a second one could be uh, a term that Gandhi used to use called sarvodaya. And sarvodaya often is translated as the welfare of all. And the reason why this concept could be uh, central to a nonviolent form of law is because it becomes very difficult to pit one party's interests over another when thinking about what outcomes we should have in the social world. We reorient ourselves to thinking about what is in the welfare of everyone. So when we combine Ahimsa and Sarvodaya, we essentially have to think of ways to live together in which uh, no one is harmed. I can provide an example, if you like, from uh, one of my articles. Yes, please. Well, there was um, an article I wrote some years ago called A Mindful Environmental Jurisprudence, where I looked at a case in Northern Michigan where a stream was being drained for the purposes of creating bottled water. And the local people living there noticed that the uh, river and its habitat were being destroyed uh, in the process of the corporation draining the water out of the river. Uh, and essentially, uh, in that situation, the corporation 
argued in favor of its own property right to take water from the river, whereas the people living along the stream uh, argued that there's a broader responsibility to the ecosystem around them. And if we were to use Gandhi's concept of Sarvodaya, it would not be a question of whether the corporation has a right to take water from the stream. It would be more of a question of how can the corporation take water from the stream without harming any of the other parties uh, that also use that stream and the habitat around the stream. And so that, that idea of the welfare for all has Ahimsa built into it. It has this sense that if we are to, let's say in this case, extract resources from this river, how do we do it in a way that does not create harm? You co-authored a paper titled Gandhi's Nightmare, Bhopal and the need for a mindful jurisprudence. Briefly remind us what happened in Bhopal in 1984, and then tell us why it was Gandhi's nightmare. In 1984, there was a pesticide plant in Bhopal, India, which is a city in central India. And the pesticide plant uh, was built by an American corporation, Union Carbide Corporation. And it was building methyl isocyanate, a pesticide. And one night in 1984, one of the tanks that was holding this pesticide or this uh, poison, um, it, it, it burst and it sent a cloud of poison into Bhopal, killing thousands of people in a matter of a few days. There were many other injuries, people with uh, all kinds of different uh, health problems uh, among the survivors. And the reason why, uh, when I wrote this article, I, I thought of the term Gandhi's nightmare is because Gandhi had his own critique of the manner in which industrialization was occurring uh, in India at the time and also worldwide. His feeling about these, you know, asphyxiating gases uh, essentially was that um, they were bound to pose these kinds of problems, and uh, many of the victims would be people who were either poor or marginalized in some way. And uh, it's I felt as I was reading his writings on some of the dangers of these type of phenomenon that. Um, this was something he foresaw. It was almost as if when he said this, that uh, he was foreseeing the nightmare of the night of Bhopal. And that's what made me uh, think of calling it Gandhi's nightmare. So I'm really digging these ideas of non-harming and the welfare of all. And then I think about the corporate profit. So how is that balanced by the welfare of the corporate profit? Yes, part of what I wrote in, a, in another article called Gandhi's Prophecy, which was about the idea of corporate social responsibility, is uh, this idea that uh, a business environment, which is for profit only, uh, it drifts away from the idea of Sarvodaya, drifts away from the welfare of all. And to be able to create a world in which private entities also have a sense of that welfare of all in its practices 
is embodied uh, in something called Gandhi's theory of trusteeship. Gandhi had an idea of trusteeship that entailed the idea that all property, or in other words, all wealth that is claimed to be owned by an individual person is actually held for the benefit of society. And it's, it's very tied to the idea that uh, the world around us is a deeply interconnected place, that we all are connected and influence each other. And the idea of drawing a bright line between what I own and what you own can, can make us forget about the ways that we're all connected and our behavior is influencing one another. And Gandhi's theory of trusteeship pulls us back to that recognition that we do have these impacts on each other. And when we reorient ourselves to thinking about the fact that our actions, our decisions, especially in regards to things like resource extraction, are going to have an influence on the environment and the people surrounding them, uh, surrounding that area, as well as people and environments far away, since the earth is very much an interconnected uh, system of ecosystems. Then we start to consider more than the, the simple uh, pursuit of profit, or what is the bottom line here? How much money are we going to make here? We begin to have to implement ways of extracting resources or ways of growing a company that integrate those considerations into our calculus. Dr. Patel, you teach at the University of Michigan Dearborn and you've applied non-Western principles in classrooms. The idea is to promote empathy as a learning outcome. So tell us about some of the solutions and non-Western principles that you've used, and how does that promote nonviolence? One of the doctrines that was uh, important to Gandhi, but, but also has been very important in my own life, is a doctrine that usually is associated with the Jain school of thought, uh, and it's called the doctrine of Anakantavad. Uh, Anakantavad can be thought of the, as um, meaning no one way. So the ah at the beginning is kind of like amoral, where somebody might say not moral or non-moral. Ah is referring to the negation of something. And then the next part, ik, means one. And then uh, the rest of the term uh, is referring to the idea of a path or a way. And so it can be translated as no one way. So the doctrine of Anakantavad is all about this idea that there's no one way to perceive a situation. And so one of the things that compelled me when I became a teacher was that I wanted our students to be able to walk away from class feeling that sense that there, there isn't a one way to perceive something, even if we're both looking at an apple, if you and I are sitting at a table together and there's an apple in the middle of the table, it might look dark and dull to me, but it might look bright and shiny to you because maybe the sun is shining behind you and it's illuminating that side of the apple. And so we don't even experience that apple in the same way. And I think one of the powerful things about that doctrine is that 
it's constantly reminding us that if we're listening to each other, very if we're deep, listening deeply to each other, especially, then we can understand why we each experience life or experience the world or experience an elephant differently. And it, it allows us to have a gateway into being, as a result, hopefully more empathetic and more compassionate to one another. And that can help us to uh, move toward a more nonviolent world. We'll hear more from Dr. Nahal Patel in the second half of our hour today on Peace Talks Radio. As usual, you can hear more from all of our guests at our website, peacetalksradio.com. So we almost always post our entire interviews with each guest there, as well as post many background resources on all of our topics. Audio links you can listen to again or share with friends. It's all at peacetalksradio.com. Today's episode is number 225, our February 2022 program there at our website. We want to hear more from our earlier guest, Dr. Joseph Llewellyn now. Llewellyn, an activist and scholar on anarcho-pacifism, was educated in New Zealand, and Suzanne talked with him over a Zoom connection from there. What would you say the qualities you see that are shared by people who are anarcho-pacifists? I guess personally, like a lot of the people I, I interview, there's, there's a huge amount of commitment to that, to nonviolence. Um, and, and a positive, ultimately, while engaging with ideas around violence and repression and optimism um, about what humans are capable and what of and what people are capable of, and that we can we can live nonviolently. And that we can all act on various levels to to do that in our own communities and like in front of us our wider and our wider communities. Um, yeah, so I, I guess there's a there's an element of hope I think with people that I've talked to who, who use that label. There must be different pieces or components that have to come together in order to require anarcho-pacifism. So. Can you think about different examples of a narco-pacifist and tell us, like, what were the similar components that had to come together for this action to happen? Yeah, that's a that's um, in some ways it's the million-dollar question. I think it's like how do we how do the movements that we're engaged in create really take off? The movements that are successful have done a lot of that before they've maybe become public or before they become wider movements. There are people in there who have dedicated a lot of time to, to doing the work and doing the practice. So if we think of Gandhi, for example, or the, especially the Gandhi movement after Gandhi, the people who launched that movement to reclaim land and divide, give land to people who were landless, um, had spent decades preparing and experimenting and thinking about what worked and trying a lot of these ideas ideas out. So I think, and drawing on the roots of where they were from as well, they weren't importing ideas from elsewhere. It was, so in in India, the the Gandhian movement was based on Indian ideals and Indian ways of operating within villages at that time. So I I think that that localness is probably, is quite important. I suppose on another level, part of it is is sometimes a little bit out of control of the people in the movements. Like it does, it where nonviolent movements take off, partly depends on what's happening in society at the time and opportunities for that. Yeah, like I'm thinking of like 
when George Floyd was murdered. Somehow that was like, in the United States, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. But it didn't seem like a lot of people were super violent about that. They just used nonviolent techniques, and that spread around the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's what we see with a lot of nonviolent movements now, is that a lot of them are quite, they're quite spontaneous um, in terms of how they, how they rise and operate. I, th I think non the nonviolent movements that tend to, say, go from one of those moments, that, like I say, the straw that broke the camel's back type of moments, to achieving maybe a different way of operating, have, there's been a lot of organisation in the background to either harness that feeling or to rely on as an alternative. I think sometimes, and this is where I think anarcho-pacifists operate differently, that they might protest and they will, I think, demand things from the state or resist the way states might cut down on things that benefit people's lives or state violence. But they're also operating on another level where they're trying to create space to open up into new ways of being and new ways of organizing and new ways of relating to each other. It seems sad, though, that to get people's attention, you have to wait until something awful happens. Like, why can't people use that optimism? It's just like, it seems like a lot of people don't have enough optimism or enough commitment to nonviolence to use it before it's almost too late. Yeah, I think, I think um, in some ways it's a, it's a sad reflection of where many places are in the world. I, I still find hope that there are, we can look at movements, and I, I keep referring to Gandhi because I think we're talking about a movement that even decades after his death involved tens of millions of people, but that we have examples of where people really do start acting on, on things to make the world a better place. And often on quite small scales or on community levels, but when we piece those together and if we can network those together, I think there are opportunities to build, build those into bigger movements. I'm so confused about insurrectionists. Like in the United States, we had like a big insurrection. Maybe you heard about that January 6th. Yeah. How are those people, are those people anarcho-pacifists? Um, I guess it depends on how you look at insurrection. I'd say generally that a lot of the examples we have of that, they're not. I see. Um, You're saying they're not. Yeah, I think generally when there's in moments of insurrection, there's, it, it tends to, insurrection tends to be used more as violent groups overtaking a government. I guess, oh. we, I guess we could have a, we could have a non-violent insurrection. So you look at groups like um, the Okpor movement in Serbia in the 90s, overthrew Milosevic. I suppose they, they gathered and they took over parliament and it was non-violent and it was to remove a violent dictator. So we have we have lots of those sorts of examples as well. Um, yeah, I think within the United States or New Zealand, I don't know, we've had examples of non-violent insurrection. Joe, for our listeners who are really interested in supporting anarcho-pacifism, what could they do? That's a really good, a really good question. I think... Um, there's a number of things you can, that people can do. I think the first is, I mean, it's specifically about anarcho-pacifism and Gandhi. There's a lot of learning there um, that can be done. And there's different organizations that provide a lot of information about these movements and theories and arguments so people can engage with that. I think if for any kind of 
anarcho-pacifist movement is that the two pillars of action, one's resistance and one's is experimenting in new ways of being. And I think there's a real, we've, we've had decades now, like I was saying, the work of Jane Sharp, Jean Sharp, there's a lot of information on how people can non-violently resist, which is really important. But I think the emphasis that is missing from a lot of left-wing movements, and this is one that really Gandhi and Vinoba Bhave and people who took over that movement after Gandhi have emphasized is that experimentation. Like find ways in front of you where you as individuals and families and communities can organize things slightly differently and experiment in ways of doing things that collectively you can benefit each other and look after the environment around you and find ways to act that don't, like a way of doing politics that isn't just about demanding things from a government or criticizing a government, but acting about where you are now. And hopefully from that basis, bigger things can grow. Yeah, but that's hard. A person has to be really committed. For example, I could resist the electricity company, but then I wouldn't have electricity. So it's like Gandhi. It takes a lot of commitment. It, it does take lots of commitment. I mean, I think I, I talked to a person when I was in, a, an older Gandhian when I was in India, and he was living in a city in an apartment block. And I asked him, like, talked about Gandhi's theories very much about building villages and this village society. How does that work in the city? And he said, well, we can start by organizing how do we clean up the rubbish around our street? How do we make sure everyone in this apartment's got food? How do we, how do, we do these things collectively and start looking after each other? For example, and I think these are very small actions, but just as ways of getting to going and thinking differently. I, I grow food in my garden. Some of my neighbors grow food in my garden. We don't all have to do that individually. We can share that and share the resources and share the abundance and make sure that everybody, say in my street, that there's nobody who doesn't have fruit and vegetables. But when we have excess, we give that away to people. And we can formulate those sorts of structures in more and more as time goes on. And I'm, I'd hope from those small sort of blocks and ways of thinking differently and supporting each other differently, as we see people naturally do when there are I think we've seen around COVID and natural disasters about we've talked about before, we can start putting those things into operation in our lives right in front of us with the aim of growing that into bigger forms of resistance. So I think it's not, there's a lot of, there are anarcho-pacifists and who have taken strong individual stances, which is very admirable. So resisting being called up to the military, for example, um, but we don't have to do it by ourselves. So I think trying to break down those barriers between individuals and our quite atomized society is a really important starting point. Dr. Joe Llewellyn, thank you. Thank you. You can hear more from Dr. Joseph Llewellyn, the complete interview that Suzanne Kreider had with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Look for the February 2022 episode once there. I'm Paul Ingalls. Anarcho-pacifism is our topic today. More from our other guest, Dr. Nahal Patel, on the subject right after a short break.
We're back on Peace Talks Radio. I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, who wanted to explore the category of thought and social action driven by a philosophy of anarcho-pacifism that combines the nonviolent pieces of both movements. We hear more now from Dr. Nahal Patel, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. He's familiar with anarcho-pacifism and Mahatma Gandhi's association with the blending of the concepts of anarchy and pacifism and his campaign to bring independence to India from British rule in the middle of the 20th century. Again, here's Suzanne Kreider talking with Dr. Nahal Patel. You developed the Mindful Law Project, and it aims to develop legal thought through the ideas of Gandhi, as well as through contemplative practices such as meditation. So what are some of the solutions to violence that are offered by the Mindful Law Project? It's interesting. I uh, I came about creating the, the Mindful Law Project partly because of my own meditative practice, and then partly because uh, having been trained in law and uh, starting to read some of Gandhi's thought, I realized he also began his early life as a practicing lawyer Um, and a practicing lawyer uh, uh, more than a century ago (laughs) who was also thinking about how to make law more of a healing profession. I think there are a lot of ways that um, in in this case, let's say meditation, yogic practice, um, and also other non-Western practices, or at least things that originated outside the West are sometimes seen in a kind of a dismissive, or in this case, woo-woo kind of way, right? Um, And I think uh, in in one of my articles called Why Lawyers Fear Love, I wrote about a little bit about why that may be. Why is it that we get this sort of woo-woo reaction from certain parts of our society. And I think it's connected to a long history of the dismissiveness of uh, any alternative or in this case, non-Western points of view. I think many times um, thoughts from um, alternative thought systems, you could say feminist theory, queer theory and others um, sometimes are subject to this type of marginalization, but in different ways. But I think what's what's very compelling to me about this is the the 50 years or so now that um, scientists have had the opportunity to study the brain of uh, what they like to call Olympic meditators, uh, Tibetan monks and, and others who spend a great deal of time meditating and they can actually see changes in brain structure. And um, I think that that might be, even though it's something that's very intuitive to many people who meditate because they actually experience that sense of calm and ease and that shift uh, toward having a direct and profound experience of interconnectedness. I think one gateway toward reaching a, a wider public to show people who don't meditate, yes, this actually is, changing you in these very positive ways uh, is is research like this. It's great that you're doing these practices, but not all of our listeners do this. I'm guessing you've learned a lot about how to deal with dismissiveness. So I'm wondering, like, 
What would you tell our listeners are a couple of things they can do to deal with dismissiveness about anything? What helps me, and, and what one of the things that's part of my practice, I, I do, I, every day I do something called the, the body scan meditation, a form of mindfulness meditation where you um, are able to bring yourself to the present moment. Um, and so uh, as one monk has, had once said, the mind can go into the past and, and ruminate about something that happened. Oh, that person said this thing to me and it was so rude. And the, the mind can also go into the future and fret about what could happen. Oh, I have this job interview tomorrow. What, you know, what's going to happen? I'm so nervous. But the body is always in the present moment. And so when you bring your mind to that present moment, uh, you can just feel the sensation in your feet. And in, in my body scan practice, I, I go up the body to the ankles and then the calf and the knees all the way till I get to the top of my body. And there are many good guided meditations um, online or, or elsewhere uh, that can guide you through that in a 20 minute or so process um, or shorter or longer in some cases. And so I start with that, but th the thing that really helps me, I think with dismissiveness is another type of meditation I started to do that's often referred to as loving kindness meditation. And um, one of the parts of my loving kindness exercise is that um, you start with somebody who you feel great love for, you know, somebody you already feel um, very close to and have very positive feelings about. It could be your, uh, your best friend or your parent or child or whoever it might be in your life. You picture that person and you, you know, you picture being right in front of them and you feel all this, all that positivity uh, around you. And then you, you switch to somebody who is kind of neutral, you know, like a stranger, somebody you just don't know much about. And then you still surround you and that person with that same kind of positive feeling that you did with the, with the first person whom you love very much. And then the third one, which is often the most difficult for many people, is to picture a person who may have dismissed you, right? Or may have, um, you know, either been dismissive or, or uh, someone within whose interaction you may have felt harmed in some way, right? And then you still, you know, sit with that person in your mind and you still surround yourself with that positive feeling. And I often find uh, sometimes it takes two times or three times, but um, I come back to a place of compassion and I come back to a place of caring and kindness, a very positive feeling. Um, I think the Dalai Lama had once called it human warmth. Dr. Patel, let me give you a hypothetical and see how you would react to this. Let's say there's um, something that's happened that's perceived as very violent and very domineering. And then there's another group of people who say, oh, that's awful. That should never happen. And so what those people do is break into the facility, maybe it's a warhead, and they damage the warhead, or maybe they destroy it. 
And I would call that sabotage. So, but it sounds a little violent. My question is, how much is sabotage really a nonviolent option or is it violent? It reminds me of what Gandhi used to do to train uh, people in the nonviolent independence movement. Uh, he used to call um, nonviolent resistors satyagrahis because the term satyagraha is uh, something that can be translated as uh, satya meaning truth and graha meaning force. Uh, sometimes it's translated in that way. And so you can think of it as truth force or Gandhi often used truth and love interchangeably. So you could think of it as love force. And one, the, one of the things that he used to do when people wanted to join the nonviolent movement is he used to have these training programs where people had to train the mind to be uh, free of angry thoughts. You know, there's this connection that um, he used to emphasize between our state of mind and then our actions, right? When we're angry, we might be more likely to want to just pick up our arm and hit somebody, right? Um, but, and so, uh, so much of nonviolent practice has to do first with us being able to train our minds. So, uh, there would be a lot of time spent on uh, being able to understand what's going on inside of ourselves um, before speaking or acting. So one of the things that comes to my mind is that so much of what I think makes an act violent is our intention behind the act. You know, are we going there in a rage with the intention of wanting to destroy um, the, you know, the buildings or the, you know, the other, especially the people who may stand in the way. Um, you know, one of the things that was very important in the training to be a Satyagrahi was to um, never respond with violence. So if somebody was, you know, beating, you know, somebody beating you back, you know, like a British soldier in those days, for example, from a building, um, you, you do not strike back, you keep yourself in that place of compassion. Um, and so this question is, a, is a very, um, it's a very good one, because on the one hand, one could say uh, a proper nonviolent response would be perhaps to um, bring the people who control those warheads into discussion or to um, do some other type of activity first short of entering the facility. Um, but another way to, that a person could think about it is to say that um, provided that people were not creating some type of harm in the process, of resisting, um, then the ability to disrupt, let's say the launching of a nuclear warhead could conceivably be a nonviolent process. Um, I, it's hard for me to go there if it means that it would be harmful to a person, right? Like if there were people at the facility and the, let's say the group of people were starting to beat or harm the person trying to uh, protect the nuclear facility. Uh, I think that would probably be against the training of a Satyagrahi. But, um, but the act in and of itself, 
of disarming a nuclear warhead, I could imagine could be done with a compassionate nonviolent intent. So I, I would focus the attention very much on the state of mind of the people involved. Yes, Dr. Patel, what else do you want to say that you haven't said? I value the idea of students and people generally um, being able to spend some time in their lives with their own minds and being able to understand themselves, kind of being able to see their mind in the same way or a similar way as you see the outside world. You know, you look outside and you see a tree and you might see a squirrel running on the ground. We can experience our minds in a similar way. We can see the thought in our mind or experience the feeling in our mind as an observer, as a witness to what is happening in the mind. And I think that's one of the first steps in being able to experience some of that calmness and tranquility that can be the gateway to not only us becoming more uh, more nonviolent individually, but also uh, to be able to have that be part of our words and actions in the world. Dr. Nahel Patel, thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. It's been a pleasure. You can hear more from Dr. Nahal Patel in the complete interview that Suzanne Kreider had with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Look for the February 2022 episode once you're there. That's where you'll find audio and more details on every one of our episodes in this award-winning series that dates back to 2002. It's also where you'll find a donate button where your support of our work at Peace Talks Radio can be gratefully processed. We also get support from the Albuquerque Community Foundation's Ties Fund, other small foundations, and many other individual listeners just like you. Thanks to this and other radio stations and broadcast and podcast outlets that carry our program, Apple Podcasts among them. Our executive director is Enola Daves-Moses. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For co-founder Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.